So I, um, I like to do some cooking, believe it or not. I like to do some cooking every now and then. I didn't do a lot of cooking, you know. I don't do a ton of cooking. But when I do cook, I enjoy it. And one of the things I like the most about cooking is working with seasonings and spices, right? I love figuring out, you know, what seasoning will work best with, with what dish. I love figuring out what new spice might really just make this, this food come alive, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm like the Swedish chef, you know, on the Muppets. You know, just throwing stuff left and right. Um, it, it's crazy. I mean, the, the kitchen is a mess when I'm in there. And, uh, you know, as you expert cooks out there know, the risk in working with a lot of spices and seasoning is that, you know, there's a danger that you can overpower the food, right? You can, you can totally mess up something if you're not careful. You can either put too much in it, or there, there are some dishes that just need to be left alone, right? I mean, they're perfectly savory in and of, of themselves, and if you go uh, adding spices and seasonings to it, uh, you may very well just totally mess up the food. That's happened to me a few times, not going to lie. Uh, there have been a few occasions where, you know, I'm seasoning, I'm spicing, I'm just going at it, and it's smelling great, and it's looking great, right until the time it's time to eat. And then as my family sits, and, and they take part in this, this meal that I've slaved over preparing, you know, sweat still running down my, my forehead, as they begin to take that first bite the, the expression on their face communicates everything without saying a word. And it communicates this. Blah! This is terrible. This is awful. We can't eat this. And I quickly realized that what started out off with a good desire to, to make this food better, to enhance it, ended up having the opposite effect. Because I added something to it that didn't need added, I actually messed up the whole dish. And what would have been really good is now no good at all. We can't enjoy it or anything. And friends, that's exactly how it is with the gospel. The gospel is perfectly fine in and of itself and totally on its own. It does not need enhanced. It does not need added to. It's perfect. It's perfectly good already in and of itself. It's perfectly powerful. It's perfectly glorious and beautiful. It's everything we need it to be. Everything we need it to be without needing anything on our part. It's not Jesus and dot, dot, dot. It's Jesus only. That's the beauty of the gospel. Come on, you you guys can get a little more excited about the gospel than that. It's Jesus only. There's nothing else needed. That's what makes the good news such good news. It means I don't have to do anything beyond what Jesus has already done. I don't have to to work to make something good because it's already good. There's nothing else I have to contribute to salvation other than my need for it. Because Jesus did it all. He secured for us forever our salvation, our eternity, our relationship with the Father that we would not have otherwise. He secured for us the full favor of God, the full acceptance of God, and the full measure of love from the Father. It's already done. He did it all for us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And any time we try to 
add something on to it or enhance it in some way, we will do nothing but succeeding in making a mess of the message. It'll be just like that dish that's over-seasoned. It won't be any good, whatever we try to do to it, because it's perfectly good in and of itself. But for as long as the gospel has been proclaimed and has been presented, there has always been this, this tension and this struggle with people that just can't quite believe that the gospel in and of itself, the, the simplicity of it is enough. It's like there's, there's got to be something more. This is just too good to be true. You know, I've got to at least contribute something toward it. I've got to do something to work for what I'm promised in the gospel. It can't be that easy. It can't be just embrace what is offered. It can't be Jesus did it all. Here's the gift given to you. And all you have to do is receive it, embrace it, believe it. There has to be something else. For centuries, in every age, that's been the struggle. Okay, hey, yeah, the gospel's great. It's good news. But what else? What else do I have to do? It can't be just that, right? That's exactly what Paul is dealing with in the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Philippians 3. Paul was writing to the Philippian church, and he, he's writing about this very same problem. That there are those who are trying to say, no, it's not enough just to believe. It's not enough just to have faith. It's not enough just to, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's more. There's something else that's required. And he's going to be talking about that. And he's going to be explaining, no, no, there is nothing else needed. It's Jesus only. It's not Jesus and. It's the gospel by itself, on its own, and that's it. That's why I've titled the specific talk today in our overall series, Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. Because that's really the summary of all of Paul's discussion in this passage. That's how we could summarize everything he says that we'll look at today. Keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. That's the main thing. Always needs to be, always should be the gospel, the main thing. So with all that in mind, let's jump into Philippians chapter 3. We'll be starting off looking at verses 2 through 6. Philippians 3, 2 through 6. Paul says this, watch out for those dogs. (laughs) Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, let me me pause here real quick because I want to make sure we all have the context of what Paul is saying here and and why he's obviously very, very upset. You know, uh, what he's describing, what he's warning the Philippian church of is a group of religious people. They were kind of like a, a faction. They were this kind of weird hybrid mix of Judaism, the Old Testament Judaism, and Christianity. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They accepted that. They even accepted his divinity. But where they stopped was at saying it's enough just to believe in Jesus as your personal Savior, committing your life to him, the faith in Christ as your Savior, that's all that's needed. They they didn't go that far. What they said was, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, and you do need to believe in him, but... To have the full favor of God on your life, to be completely accepted by him, to make sure your salvation is entirely secure, you have to follow the Old Testament law, along with believing in Christ. Specifically, you have to observe the rite of circumcision. 
Now, circumcision was a big deal for the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, that's what God established as a physical statement of their being set apart by God. It was a physical testimony of the fact that they were the chosen nation of God. And every Jewish male was required to have that done. So what these guys are saying, and we call them the Judaizers, what they were saying is, hey, Jesus is great. Yeah, we, we worship and we praise him and, and he is the Messiah. But, hey, you Gentile believers, if you really want to know God is for you, you really want to be sure that you are his child, you're going to have to be circumcised. That's the way to secure all of the, of the salvation that you need. And this drove Paul crazy. Because they missed the point entirely. As he spent a lot of time talking about in Romans as he talked about in Galatians, and as he mentions in the next verse, that's not the point of circumcision. Circumcision, much like baptism today, it is important. But it's still a statement. It's still a picture. It's a symbol. It's a physical statement of an inner belief. It's a physical outward testimony of a spiritual faith. That was the point of circumcision in the Old Testament. That's the point of baptism in the New. It's, it's saying, I am following God. He is my Lord. I am his child. I am obeying him with my life. But it does not save you in and of itself. Circumcision was never meant to make someone right with God. Paul talks about that a lot. He says, no, no, you, you, there's the faith in God There's the following him. There's the obedience to him that happens at the heart level, that happens in the inner man. That's a spiritual commitment. Circumcision is is simply the physical statement of that. It's the outward evidence of that being true in the heart. And this was causing so much division and so much confusion. It It was just tearing through the church, and it was it was causing all these problems. So Paul was just, he had enough. And so he said, hey, Philippian church, avoid that kind of teaching. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus only. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, with all that in mind, let's jump back at the text. Verse 3 says this, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. See what he's saying there? He's saying, no, it's not about the physical thing. It's not about physical circumcision having some magic effect, making you what you need to be, making you right with God, bringing you salvation. It's not a magic wand. It's a testimony. It's a statement. We who worship by the Spirit, in other words, we who are truly spiritual, born again, we're the ones who God looks at and says, no, that's, that's really what I wanted to have happen here. We are the ones who are truly circumcised. Why? Because of this next statement. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. That's so key. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. See the the done deal there? It's already been done. What he has done, it's over, it's secure, it's complete. And we don't depend on anything or anyone else for our salvation for our relationship with God. It's all about Jesus. We rely on, on his work, his effort, not our own. He goes on, he says, we put no confidence in human effort. Then he, plays, then he plays kind of the devil's advocate with his argument. 
you know, the, the, the case he's making, the point he's making. He says this in verse 4, Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. So what he's saying is, all right, let, let's just pretend for a moment that human effort really can bring about salvation. That human effort really is enough to make you right with God. If anybody could rely on human effort, if anybody could boast about what they are, if anybody could say, I am the man, it would be Paul. That's what he was saying. He's saying, if anybody could do that, it'd be me. Here's why. He's going to give us a little bit of a, of a resume. He's going to give us his, his Old Testament, his, his legalist credentials. Okay, He's going to give us the humanistic moral resume that he's had. Verse 5. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, just like a good Jew is supposed to be. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a very prominent, very elite tribe. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees. You guys remember those guys, always at odds with Jesus. Who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous or passionate for what I believed in for the cause that I harshly persecuted the church, as, as we know he did. Paul, known as Saul, went about persecuting the entire church, almost to the point of extinction at its very early ages. And we, we know later on, Paul says, as he looks back at that dark time, he said, I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do for God. This persecuting of Christians before I became a Christian, I was doing it as a service to God. That's how messed up my focus was. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, well, I obeyed the law without fault. See, that's, that's Paul's human resume, his credentials under the law. And what we are seeing here in Philippians 2 through 6, what is summed up, by this is one word, legalism, legalism. That, that's really the, the, the idea behind what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 through 6. That's what he's describing. He's describing legalism or, or performance-driven religion. Performance-driven religion, legalism, same kind of thing. That's what he's describing, he's talking about. And by no means is this kind of thing limited to Paul's day. It is by no means limited to the Judaizers that he was dealing with over and over. It's no, it was not limited to this time in history. No, church, legalism is alive and well. <laughs> it's alive and well. And I, I want to let you know two main areas that legalism affects. There, there's two relationship facets that legalism always, always directly correlates to. The first one is, is toward God. Legalism affects our relationship toward God. And it says this, legalism um, says on our part to God, and if we have a legalistic mindset or a legalistic, legalistic point of view or perspective, we in a sense will say to God, I will work for love. I'll work for love. What I mean by that is the legalist will obey, but they'll obey in order to be accepted. They will obey, but they'll obey in order to be loved. They'll obey, but they'll obey to, because they feel like they have to somehow maintain the favor of God on their life. You know? So I obey, I, I am righteous, and I pursue righteousness, and I pursue holiness, and I, I follow God's every command 
but, but it's, not, it's not out of a, out of a pure motive or out of a good source. It's, it's out of fear. It's out of fear and it's out of like a cold sense of duty. I, I must obey or God won't like me, you know? Uh, if, I, if, I, if I do right and I, I'm avoiding sin, then I feel good about myself and, and I know God really likes me. But if I fail, if I fall, if I stumble, I hate myself and God doesn't like me anymore. So it's this constant you know, teeter-totter of, of emotion and, and God liking me and him not liking me, God loving me and him not loving me. I feel good about myself, myself and my spiritual life. I feel bad about myself and my spiritual life. Legalism is like kind of like... Um, a spiritual bipolar, you know? That's really what legalism kind of is. It's like spiritual bipolar disorder. You're up, you're down. You're up, you're down. One moment, you're, you're, you know, God's on your side, and he's just loving you to death. The next minute, because, oh, you messed up, he's not very happy with you. He doesn't like you anymore. So it's, it's, it's very performance-motivated, performance-driven. It's, it's, it's saying, I will work for love. And if I work and if I obey, then God must love me. If I don't, he's under no obligation to. Isn't that sad? And it's, it's exhausting. And no one can live up to the standard that legalism sets. Because what legalism sets, what it calls for, is perfection. That's why we needed a Savior. Because we can't do it. Well, that's the first aspect of what legalism affects. The second relationship aspect that it affects is, is our relationship toward people toward people, toward other people. And here's what legalism does in my relationship or my response to people. It imposes personal preference and tradition onto their lives. It imposes personal preference and tradition. The good legalist will always be expecting everyone else to abide by their own personal standards, their own personal preferences and feelings on things, opinions, their own personal convictions, it imposes that. It says, you must have the same mind on this as me, or you're not as righteous as I am. See, legalism also ushers in this overwhelming sense of pride. Because if you're truly a legalist, you you may not ever say this out loud, but subconsciously you're going to feel like you're the only one that has the right answer. That you're the one that has the market cornered on righteousness and on holy living and on God's will. So it imposes your personal preferences and tradition onto other people and expects them to follow it. It's very externally focused. It's an external focus rather than an inward, an inward focus. It, it, it takes very, pays, pays very close attention to how a person looks on the outside. What kind of clothing do they wear? What, what kind of hairstyle do they have? Do they have tattoos or not? You know, because the, 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 the strict legalist will say, don't ever get a tattoo and don't hang with those who do. Don't ever get a tattoo and don't hang with those who do. That, that's an example. That's one example. You know, it just zeroes in on all the external, all the physical. And then right along with that, it's naturally going to be judgmental and critical. Judgmental and critical. So how to know you're a legalist? Well, you're going to follow these things right here. You're going to constantly be imposing your personal preference and tradition on other people, expecting them to, to follow it, to have it too. You're going to be constantly externally focused, and you're going to be judgmental and critical. That's how to know you're a good legalist. You know. Um, and I wish I could say it just wasn't present in the church anymore, but you know better than that. This is still a big problem in the church. 
And, and one of the, and I'm not, just, I'm not saying this church, I mean the, the church as a whole, the universal church, it's still a problem. It's still an issue. And, and the biggest examples of this source of, of tension in the church, uh, especially in more rural areas like our own, uh, it still comes back to clothing and music and appearance. You know the, the phrase church clothes? Church clothes? Like that's just the, it's constant debate. What is appropriate? What is not? Right? What is really, what, what are church clothes really? I mean, what, what makes up church clothes? Like, you know, you can't just go to Walmart or, or Kohl's or JCPenney and there's not a rack that says church clothes, you know? So, so it's open for interpretation. And therein is the problem. Therein is the problem because some people have an idea in their head that this must be what you wear to church. Other people say, no, 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 this must be what you wear to church. And, and so you have, you have two main examples. You have some that believe that this, you know, is the only way that you can come to church and really worship. You know, let me get this thing. See, see how well I do this? <laughs> see how often I wear one? Uh, you know, you have to have the tie. And, and, and that's the only way that you can really come and, and be righteous before God or, whole, or, or have a holy mindset. And, and that's how you can really show reverence for God. And that's the only way. Then, though, before, before you, you just harp on, on this side of it, then there's the others who say, no, no, if you ever wear a suit and a tie to church, you're nothing but a legalist. It must only be casual. It must only be comfortable. Suits, bleh. Let me give you two examples of, of the two mindsets in the extreme that are both exhibiting legalism. Uh, I have a friend who I served with at the other faith Baptist I was at in Virginia. And uh, he told me the story of a time when he went to a church farther down the road. He was visiting and uh, he had long hair, long hair. He came with a T-shirt on and jeans, had tattoos, came into this church. And uh, one of the ushers or one of the deacons, I don't remember who it was, it was an older guy, came up to him and said, son, you're not going to be very happy here. And he said, really? Why? Why wouldn't I be happier? He said, well, for one, none of our men have long hair. For number two... Where's your tie? Where's your suit? Well, and the guy said, well, I don't really, I don't really own one. I, I just wanted to come to church. And he said, well, you're not going to fit in here. Because here, the men dress up in suits. Here, the men don't have hair like girls. Here, the men don't have tattoos. I think you'd better find a different church. No lie. Really happened. Needless to say, he didn't go back. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, but then, there, let me give you another example. The pastor I served with at the same church told of a story uh, of someone he knew, one of his friends, that went to a, a church farther down in Virginia, and uh, this church made very, very clear that, that they had no dress code in place. I mean, they, they stressed that. No dress code. Come as you are. Come as you want. And, and he just really paid, paid a lot of attention to that. So uh, my, my former pastor's friend came to this church, and he came in a suit and in, in a tie because that's what he was comfortable with. That's what he was used to. That's just how he did it. He didn't believe that was the only way, but that's what he wanted to do. So he came into this church, just wanted to check it out, ready to worship. 
one of the guys came up to him and said, Sir, uh, can I help you with something? He said, Well, uh, I'm, I'm just here to, to visit with you and try out your church. And the guy said, um, I don't think you're going to be very comfortable here. And the older guy said, Why not? He said, Well, you're going to be the only one in a suit and a tie. And the guy said, Oh, well, is that a problem? And the guy said, Well, we're, we're kind of going for a certain kind of culture here, and, you know, and, and I just don't think, you know, you're going you're gonna to really mesh with that. And the guy said, well, on your, on your program it, and on your sign and your website and everything, it says, no dress code, come as you want. The guy said, so I came as I wanted. The guy said, no, yeah, 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 but, but, that, but we, we don't want anybody to wear ties or suits. The guy thought about it for a second. He looked at me and said, so what you're saying is your, non, your non-dress code is a dress code of casual attire. That's your dress code. The guy, no, 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 we don't have a dress code. And the man said, okay, thank you. Obviously, you know, whoosh, way over the head. The point of both of those is on either side, guess what? It's clothing. <laughs> and that's it. You know, so, I mean, goodness gracious, if somebody wants to wear a suit, let them wear a suit. It's fine. Women only want to wear a dress when they come to church. That's fine. Want to wear pants? That's fine, too. Guys, you want to wear a T-shirt and jeans? Go for it. You know why? Because God is far less concerned about what we have in clothing than he is about the heart and the spirit. That's what he's after. You know, uh, I think of Samuel with David. You know, Samuel was going down to to all of David's brothers, and he said, oh, this guy must be it. Oh, oh, this guy surely is the next king. Look at him. He's like a beast. And then God kept saying, no, no, not this one. Keep going, keep going. Finally, you know, David was found, and it's like, David? Really? God, really? David? He's just this little scrawny shepherd boy. And God told him, be careful, Samuel. Careful. Man judges on the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, Look after the heart. Indeed, praise God. I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, it's not, it's not, you must look this way to be, or if you look this way, you must not be. That, that's just judgment. That's just criticism. That's, that's legalism. That's not the spirit of the Lord. You know, we, we have to be very, very careful, and it's very subtle how, how easily this creeps into our thinking. And my friends, we can all easily play the part of the legalist. We all have this incredible tendency to pursue legalism, to be the Pharisee. It's something we've got to fight against every single moment of our lives. I mean, it's a struggle for all of us. It's a struggle for me. You know, we, we can just so easily judge other people, you know, and you know what I'm talking about. You've had the thought, even if you never said it, oh my goodness, look at them, they can't possibly be. Or the, up, the other side, oh, look how polished and put together they are. They, they must just really love the Lord. I mean, you know, we, 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 can, we can err on either side of that, and we can be so focused on the external, on, on whatever that may look like for you, that we miss the point. So let's, let's fight against imposing 
you know, personal preference and tradition. Let's, let's fight against being so externally focused. Let's fight against being judgmental and critical. And please hear me on this. I'm not just saying there, there's no responsibility at all. There's nothing to, you know, to follow uh, or pursue as far as a, a standard. I'm not saying that. Uh, the Bible's very clear that we need to appear modestly. And the Bible's very clear that we need to be above reproach. So those two things have to happen. Have to happen. That's what we do need to guard. Make sure we're modest. Make sure we're not causing other people to, to sin with our appearance. Make sure we're above board. That's all needed. But beyond that, we need to be very careful about not policing other people on what we think they should wear or how they should be in terms of style. And we definitely don't want to attach spirituality and righteousness to a set of clothing or to the length of a, of a haircut or to ink on an arm. You know... Not having a tattoo or not having long hair, again, just by example here, does not make you inherently more spiritual than the one who does, right? And it goes both ways. You know, celebrating your freedom in Christ, that doesn't give you the, the excuse to just shove that down people's throats. The Bible's very clear on that too. It's giving preference to one another. It's respecting one another. It's showing mutual love, mutual respect, and pursuing unity together. All right, so that's, that's legalism in a nutshell, okay? Let's shift gears. And in verses 7 through 9, we're going to see Paul's emphasis and his contrast on the gospel. You know, he's talking about legalism, what to avoid. Now he's going to focus on the gospel and how that is always, always, always the most excellent, most important thing to pursue, how that always should be the main thing that we keep the main thing. So jumping back in the text, Philippians 3, verse 7. You know, he just got done listing all of his credentials under the law, all his, his legalistic resume. And he says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. See, his focus comes back to Christ every time. It's all about what Jesus has done for me. It's all about him. It's not about me. Yes, verse 8 Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is worthless. My preferences, my opinions, my traditions, what I pursue, my agenda, all of it's worthless. Stacked up against, compared against the infinite value of actually knowing Jesus. For his sake, for his sake, for Christ's sake. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Why? Why, Paul? Why would you do that? So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer, this is so important, church, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on, you tell me, faith. faith. Depends on faith. Nothing else. It's faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. That's what we need to be anchored to. So what Paul is describing here in these verses, contrasting legalism in the first few verses, is the gospel. That's his whole focus. He's just shining a big light on the gospel. 
And just as there are two relationship aspects that legalism affects, the same is true for the gospel. There's two main groups that, that the gospel causes me to respond in certain ways toward. Number one, just like before, it's, it's toward God. The gospel calls for a response in my relationship toward God. It calls for me to, to believe something about my relationship with God. And what it calls for me to believe, to accept, to stand on is the fact that I am loved. I am loved. Friends, the gospel tells us and it communicates to us, I am already fully loved and fully accepted and fully favored by God, not because of anything I've done or can do and not because of anything I don't do. It's all because of and through Christ. My whole relationship with the Father is directly tied to Jesus Christ. So it's not about what I do or don't do that affects that love relationship. You understand what I'm saying? It's all secure already for me. It's all tied to Jesus, to his work, to his righteousness. At the cross, he got all of my sin and all of my shame, all of my, my being at in, an enemy and at war with God. He got all that, and in exchange, he gave me his righteousness, and he gave me the love of the Father, and he gave me acceptance. That was the exchange that took place. So when you come to Christ and you embrace him as your Lord and Savior, everything about your standing with God is tied eternally to Jesus and what he did for you. That's the point. So the gospel says, I'm fully loved and accepted by God already and forever will be. And because of that, I I obey and I serve. I obey God, I keep his commandments, I follow his standards and his principles, I serve him with my life, not in the hopes of gaining some favor by God, not in the hopes of gaining love, but because I already have it. So everything I do is in direct response to the love I've already received. That's the gospel, church. All of my service for him, all of my my avoiding sin and rejecting it and pursuing righteousness instead, my loving other people, my serving other people, it's all out of a response to love. All out of a response to amazing grace. And we need to remember this because for some reason we all have this very, very frequent occurrence of spiritual Alzheimer's. Where we, you know, we know when we come to Christ, I can't do anything to get salvation. I believe, Jesus, I need you with all my heart. I can't save myself. I believe that. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. You are my only hope. I give you my life. Like, that, that's, that's fairly easy to understand. I can't bring anything to the table. You know, I can't contribute anything to my salvation except for my need for it. And we, we get that at first, like when we're coming to Christ, when we're first saved. But then as we go on, you know what happens? We tend to have this, this faulty, this foolish logic that says, I know I couldn't get myself saved, but somehow it's up to me to keep myself saved. And you might never say that, but subliminally, subliminally and subconsciously and by, by certain perspectives and actions, that, that's what we communicate. It wasn't up to me at the beginning, but somehow it switched, and for some reason, it's all up to me now. <laughs> you know? Living for God, it's all up to me. Pursuing righteousness, it's all on me, it's all on my shoulders, but that's not true. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is always going to be true. It's always for by grace that we have been saved through faith and not of ourselves, but rather the gift of God. Not that any of us can ever boast. That will always be true. 
always be true. Now, I said that it also, just like legalism, it affects our relationship toward, toward people, and that's what it does. It, it affects our relationship and, and dictates our relationship toward God. It drives that. It also drives and affects our relationship toward people. The gospel does. Here's, here's, what, here's what it does. Here's what the gospel does in my relationship and the way I respond to other people. And this is a direct contrast to what legalism does. First, it honors the Holy Spirit's personal ministry. It honors the Holy Spirit's personal ministry. You know, as opposed to legalism, imposing my own personal preference and my tradition on others, expecting them to live up to that, the gospel frees me to honor the Holy Spirit's individual working, knowing that that as he works in my life, it might look entirely different from how he works in your life. The conviction that I have on certain things you may not have. I mean, we may. We may share that, and that's great. But we have to understand when it comes to the the things that Scripture is silent on, when it comes to the gray areas, we have to allow the Holy Spirit and honor the Holy Spirit to work individually, person by person. And please hear me. I am not talking about the black and white things in Scripture. I'm not talking about the objective, timeless standards of the Word of God. I'm not talking about theology and doctrine. I mean, those things, those are anchored, and, and you don't depart from that. And that's not up for grabs, and that's not up for questioning. I'm talking about the things Scripture is silent on. I'm talking about the gray areas. I'm talking about ethics. And that's where I've got to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you personally and honor that, and you've got to allow the Holy Spirit to work in me and honor that. And that's what the gospel frees us to be able to do. Secondly, uh, as opposed to being externally focused with, with legalism, the gospel allows us to be heart-focused. It allows us to, to consider the person's heart more than the outside of them. It allows for, for grace there, and it allows me to, to value them and see them as a, as a spiritual person. It, it allows me to value them as a brother and a sister because I know where their heart is, and that's what I look for because that's what God looks for. So I, I match what he does on that. And that's only possible through the gospel. Then lastly, instead of being judgmental and critical of others, I'm, I'm able in the gospel to encourage and value others. I'm able to come alongside and, and be a support system, and, and you are for me. I'm able to encourage you and, and motivate you, and you are to me as well. I'm able to value what you bring to the kingdom, regardless of how different you might be from me, and vice versa. That's what the gospel does. Isn't that so much better? <laughs> I mean, legalism, church, it's exhausting. And it's restrictive, and it's, it's constraining and suffocating. The gospel is freeing. It's rejuvenating. It's life. We need to remember that Jesus did not say, whom the Son sets free is free just to go back under a new law. It's not what he said. He said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. means free absolutely. Not free to just do whatever you want. (laughs) Not free to sin. Paul talks about that in a great deal in Romans. He says, what, should we sin just so that grace can keep abounding to us? No, God forbid, may it never be. And in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Jesus Christ died and was raised so that those who live for him would no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. See, the gospel does demand something. It demands my all. But it doesn't demand it out of some cold sense of duty or, or uh, doing it so that I get God's favor and love. It, it, it demands my all and I give my all when I realize 
Jesus gave his all for me. And he loved me that much to leave heaven and go to the cross and to give his life for me that I might have life. And so what I do with my life is I take it and I say, here, Jesus, it's yours. Out of love, because I'm already loved. So freeing. As opposed to being so exhausting, pursuing legalism. What does that mean for us? What does this all mean? It means, church, that we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly because we forget. We get used to our Christian life and our Christian experience, and we forget that just as I was saved by grace alone and nothing I could do to to bring that about, the same will always be true. I have to operate my life, and I have to walk in grace constantly because it's all about Christ from start to finish. It's he that began a good work in us that will carry it out to completion, not he started it and I just keep finishing it. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of what we were and what we would be apart from the grace and salvation of Christ. That totally erases any room for judgment on others. It's not up to us. It's not about us. It's all been done by Jesus and it's all about him. He is the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. And we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. 